Welcome to Profiles. Welcome to Profiles. A monthly podcast featuring industry disruptors. Tune in to hear the stories of people who weren't afraid to dream big, take chances, and shake things up. Hello and welcome to Promo Corner's podcast, Profiles, where we'll be talking with industry disruptors to get their take on the world of promotional products and how they're shaking things up. I'm your host, Steve Woodburn, and we appreciate your taking time out of your busy day to schedule time with us. She grew up in the land of lobsters and moose, the only state bordered on three sides by Canada, which matches well with her French-Canadian heritage. She attended Purdue University, she says on a dare, and after graduating with a degree in biomedical engineering and not being able to land a job, she went to work for a company she had seen all her life because they had an opening in the accounts payable department. Grew up in Maine, uh, went to Purdue on a dare, uh, graduated, uh, got my degree, came back home. I was very young and couldn't find a job in my field of study. So I took a job at Geiger without any intention whatsoever of uh, staying there. And uh, after a few years, I fell in love with the business and fell in love with the family. And the business is obviously about the people and the family are about the people. And uh, I've stayed there ever since. I stayed in an accounts payable department. And then I just sort of snaked my way through uh, all the other different departments uh, one way or the other, whether it was manufacturing or sales or marketing, and uh, eventually to where I am now today as president and CEO. Her name is Joanne Lance, and as she noted, after spending her entire career with Geiger, based in Lewiston, Maine, she became their president and CEO in 2019 as the first non-family member and the first woman to run the company. When she took that first job with Geiger, she had no idea she would stay there her entire career and certainly had no aspirations to eventually run the company. I think that um, I probably had been with the company seven, eight years when I realized that I could make a career in this company and in this industry. So I don't think I had a plan for the first 10 years of the business And then when opportunities opened up, uh, including going to the trade shows, getting involved in the marketing side of the business, getting exposed to the salespeople and the clients, then I I saw that there might be a path for a real long-term commitment to the organization. But the organization itself and the Geiger family itself also, even back then, creating paths for individuals. So it was sort of a a merging or meeting of the minds at the same time, getting back to how businesses are loyal to people and help people to develop. And so that was when I started seeing, I was about 30 years old when I started seeing that this could be a, a lifetime career. She grew up less than three miles from the Geiger facility, but had no idea what they did. I remember as a child sitting on a school bus, driving by the building. I remember as a child riding my pony up uh, around the building and had no idea what the organization was. Uh, I didn't know what Kyger was. I didn't know. I mean, it was just the factory. And so I think it was happenstance when I uh, got my first job there. You know, like others, I had a small amount of debt from school. So 
I just applied and got in and uh, didn't stay very long in the accounting department, moved into the manufacturing area, helping the um, vice president of manufacturing. And that's uh, when my eyes opened up. Biomedical engineers use modern biological principles in their engineering design process, but Geiger sells promotional products. So how did she square these two facts? Engineering is such a great discipline and study uh, for people, and I absolutely believe in it to this day. And I was just sharing with a colleague earlier today that I still have tools in my toolkit, which are the very basic foundations that I learned back then that I still apply to today. In terms of the disciplines of understanding um, how all the parts are connected, whether it's from a very initial prospect to selling a product, but how you have to either have that product delivered, but even more so the back end in terms of the operations until it's invoiced, collected, paid for. I think that that the disciplines of linking all those pieces together and understanding that a sale isn't a sale until the client pays, uh, I think those foundations are really what's helped me in business. Joanne, like many of us, has been in the promo business for decades. And I ask her, what is it that captivates us? Why do people get into this crazy business, usually by accident, and make it their career? I think it grabs hold of you for um, a number of ways. No matter what skill sets you have, if you're creative, if you're in finance, if you're technical, there's a role or an opportunity for you. It's not just the industry in terms of the sales aspect of the industry, but no matter who you are and whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you have a role. But the second part is, you know, I often hear nobody really knows about our industry. They fall into this industry. Well, it's almost like it's a, uh, not a, it's the best cast secret uh, because the people and how the people interact uh, really helps hold and hold you. So you're you're held not only captured by allowing you to succeed and no matter what your skill sets are, but also because of the people around you. It truly is. That's I think that's the magic and the secret sauce. The Geiger family has always run their 140-year-old business, four generations of men. So why did they go outside the family to find new leadership when Jean Geiger decided to step aside? I never, ever considered that I would end up being CEO or the president of the company. It just, uh, it never crossed my mind. For some reason, I thought Gene would never age. And I just, it just, I mean, he's always strategic. He's always looking over the horizon. He is very energetic. And I just, I didn't see it coming. And when we have a board that has both internal and external members, you know, members of his family, I would call it internal, Mm -hmm. external members that serve on the board. And the board, I believe, uh, spoke to him about succession planning. And I think that's when he approached myself and some of other my other colleagues about would any of us be interested in applying to be president. Uh, I had to go through an application process, had to go through a testing process, I had to go through an interview process uh, so that they could determine who would be the best candidate. So I don't think it was Gene that selected me. I really feel that it was um, the board uh, with this external input 
that was involved in it. And I had to prove to them, like any candidate would have to prove, even if you were applying for an outside position, whether you had the skill sets and the ability to lead the company in the direction that the uh, the family wanted. And I was fortunate enough to uh, be, uh, be awarded that position or that opportunity, gets back to opportunity. And then, of course, I had to prove myself. She took over in mid-2019, prior to the challenges our industry and the world have faced in the last few years. When she stepped into her new role, what did her crystal ball tell her about the future? Well, I'll tell you what I didn't see. I didn't see COVID. I didn't see a supply chain shut down. I didn't see uh, this crazy seesaw of unemployment. I didn't see inflation. So there's a whole boatload of things that I didn't see. I'm kind of glad I didn't see that because I think I, I would have been terrified, even more terrified as we were going through it. But what I did see or what I heard, because at the end of the day, I don't have, you know, I'm not strategic in terms of being able to see over the horizon, but I can hear pretty well and synthesize information is the need for uh, clients to have um, more integrations with their suppliers. And as a distributor, a client looks at us as a supplier. I saw the need uh, or the shift of the type of person or teams of people, I should say, that work with clients, especially on an enterprise or a global basis. I definitely saw clients asking for solutions beyond the U.S. borders and the need for us to expand in that direction. Um, I had heard and I had seen and experienced the capabilities of a homegrown internal system and that the need to expand and change that system in terms of e-commerce uh, so that it's more have a user more user friendly uh, interface, but also one that we can share information. I saw that the direction of information would be more data driven, and how we could use that and will use that and have used that to make our business decisions. And the family had always, always, always been. Uh, um, focused on inclusivity and sustainability. I mean, that was part of the family culture and yet how we could use the heritage in this area to help us continue to expand and be a leader in these areas. After four years leading the largest privately owned distributorship in the business, what specific areas does she see that need disruption? Pain points. So uh, anything that has to do with a pain point needs to be disrupted. And that uh, that's the entire chain. And so when people talk about disruption, what they're talking about is eliminating cost, eliminating pain points. They're not necessarily thinking, you know, again, he's probably not thinking so much about the customer interaction, but even then that can be a pain point in terms of when that client, when that client's ready or the client knows that they have something coming, how can we help eliminate their pain points? And any time that there's a pain point, that needs to be disrupted. I think the biggest pain point for clients is the cost of freight. You know, people talk about inflation, but the cost of freight is a huge pain point for a client. So there's some wonderful opportunities for disruption there. And uh, how do you do that? That would be one. Uh, currency, that's a pain point that could be uh, disrupted. Uh, certainly the e-commerce interfaces, 
uh, we use a term in our company called single pane of glass. How can we create a single pane of glass for our clients uh, if they are using a web interface or even our employees? How do you get all your information in one portal? That's a pain point. So those are a few. With the advent of the Internet in the late 1990s and the technology shifts worldwide, our business has changed radically. No longer are customers simply looking for products, but are in need of solutions they can implement globally, something Joanne worked on prior to becoming CEO and continues to develop. And I think that when people think about the U.S. and North American market, we have to realize the markets are just as sophisticated outside of our borders in all seven continents. I think that our future, well, our future is both uh, being global and having local representation. Because the type of interactions that we have with clients, and really there are almost two kinds. Of course, there's the e-commerce vertical where clients only want to speak with you. Actually, they never want to speak with you. It's all uh, on e-commerce basis, perhaps a live chat at the very at the very most, but they want something simple, easy, being able to be creative, but almost as a one-off ad hoc type of order. But when you start talking about enterprises or clients or businesses, corporations, it starts to become more sophisticated and that we have to understand all of the aspects of their business, not only the external marketing of the brand, but the internal machinations of their business as well in terms of everything from application for P cards, procurement cards, to their accounts, uh, to how we integrate with whatever systems that they choose to be. Technology continues to grow and change exponentially, another area where disruption is happening. Of course, India has been a primary source for technology and or for even back shop operations. Um, and We've heard about the role that Ukraine had, uh, especially in the programming area. But with the war in Ukraine, that has disrupted that. And we're hearing and seeing how that is now sourcing off to Romania and some other areas. So an aspect of our industry, which we forget, which is the cool stuff product side. And for those that can't see, I'm showing Steve some stuff from my pen. Uh, but the technology itself that makes all that stuff happen, that's being shifted and that's moving into new areas. The elephant in the room these days is China and the fact there are few alternatives at this point to manufacturing hard goods elsewhere. Does she see this changing anytime soon? In my opinion, China will still be the primary source of hard goods uh, for the next decade. Uh, and, when, and I say primary source because we all can source hard goods uh, in different other different areas. But I, I don't see that that uh, production machine of theirs going away to the proportion of our overall sales. On apparel and soft goods and textiles, it's been shifting for a long time. And I think that, that just the textiles market uh, through the last hundred years, if you're a student of history, uh, textiles tend to gravitate where the lowest cost of goods to be manufactured is, and that's where the raw materials are coming from, and that that chain comes from there, from that, that source of supply. Another area where there is much discussion is the role of distributors and suppliers, and whether that model will continue. 
Or will suppliers start selling to end users as a new revenue stream, just as some distributors choose to go around suppliers and buy direct from manufacturers? I hear your point in terms of suppliers, how they feel. Some suppliers feel uncomfortable if they uh, uh, bump into me in Hong Kong or in Asia, or how distributors might feel uncomfortable if we hear that a supplier might be interacting with a customer. At the end of the day, the best relationships are those where a supplier and a distributor occasionally go in together to help a customer with a very sophisticated uh, need. And I've seen it happen over and over and over. But you have to have a subject matter expert. And your supplier is a subject matter expert in regards to their product. And so those suppliers that are trusted and have salespeople that can come in and actually participate in the presentation for whatever it is, if it's a really complicated apparel uniform program, uh, complicated technical program, uh, perhaps maybe even uh, an e-commerce solution with a digital interface to award gifts. I think that there are opportunities for us to work together. Likewise, a distributor has to really respect that the risk a supplier takes in bringing uh, goods on shore. And uh, I think uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, it was the rage that uh, small distributors could think that they could go to Asia you know, and cut out their supply chain or maybe a portion of their supply chain. Well, it's the same thing. They're subject matter experts. They are um, there's so much there's so many nuances of bringing items in into our shores that it's there's more than an appropriate role for suppliers to do that, especially since clients want their items delivered in an Amazon like way. Well, that's where a supplier can really help in that area. Um, so I think that there's opportunities for both. I think that the model of a supplier distributor for the very small suppliers will change. Uh, because of the, the little cost of doing business, and that will change. It'll be always be new and emerging suppliers because they come up with new and emerging ideas. But the need for suppliers to partner uh, with uh, larger suppliers who might have some of the expertise and skill sets in these areas uh, is uh, will help ch- will sh- create a shift. Um, I think that the there will always be certain suppliers that. Uh, distributors can trust to work with them as well and help them interface with clients. Given the massive changes over the last five years, where does she see things headed in the next five? And what does she see as the biggest challenges we face? I think that the biggest challenges are the complexity of the demands that are being driven by the large clients. And when I say complexity, the types of contracts that we receive from clients or, you know, they used to be 20, 25 pages. Now they're 70 to 90 pages long. I see the demands uh, that they and or our governments are placing on us with both um, the technology that we use and the privacy of the information that that will be some of the biggest challenges that we face uh, and with complexity and demand, uh, it's how we integrate solutions to help our clients uh, because at the end of the day, we're helping our clients promote their brand uh, to expose them to their clients and prospects. They'll become more and more complex. And it's already happening. 
For those just entering our business in any position, what advice would she have for them as they get their feet wet? Well, let me shift that. What advice would I give individuals who either aspiring for a leadership role or wanting to be a leader and to necessarily move into a new position that you have to have both that toolkit. So a a strong education or opportunity or ability to study in certain fields of whatever fields that you're interested in. At the same time, you have to, and I've had to learn how to listen more to everyone. Just because the introverts don't speak up doesn't mean that they don't have um, not only uh, a valid opinion, they may have an opinion that they see things differently than everyone else because they're the introverts. And the last is that you have to really look at yourself in terms of what skill sets do I need or do you need in order to be more well-rounded. And it's not about moving up anymore. Um, one of my new colleagues has taught me that it's not about climbing the ladder anymore. It's how do you move like a spider across the lattice? And so if you're able to not only learn or aspire to be in whatever discipline you have, take some time to learn somebody else's job and experience that job or experience that career. And if you can cross that lattice, then you're much more grounded so that you can aspire to new leadership opportunities. As a leader, one must take time for themselves to reflect. And Joanne says she's a runner, an avid golfer and snowboarder, and anything else that gets her outdoors and into nature. But her hobby is something you've probably never heard of. Carnival glass. A type of glassware popular in the early 20th century that was used as prizes at carnivals, as well as an early premium used by grocery stores and gas stations to bring in customers. You know, my mother, my aunts... Uh, were a product of the 1930s. And so you could go to a gas station uh, and if you filled up your piece, of, your, your tank of gas, you might get a piece of carnival glass or you go to the movies and for 10 cents, you get a piece of carnival glass. And it's the most beautiful, I think it's one of the most beautiful glass in the world. And so my mom and my aunts, all aunts, I should say my French Canadians coming through, aunts, are uh, all had pieces of this and they sort of coalesced and I and, and ended up inheriting a, a number of pieces. And it's just so beautiful that now I have this massive collection of it and we use it. it it's amazing. I have, I have a collection of glassware dishes that date back to the 1930s. So it's 90 years old. Still can run it through the dishwasher. We use it. It's the most beautiful table settings in the world. It can be used every day, and it's beautiful to look at. And so that's why I'm now a collector of carnival glass and have a say, uh, I could say 22 people. As kids, we all dream of the exciting things we want to do when we grow up. For a woman in the 20th century who spoke only French the first five years of her life, what did Joanne dream of becoming? Maybe a priest, eh? First of all, English is not my first language. I'm French-Canadian, so I spoke French for my first five years 
And then when I went to school, we had classes taught in French in the morning and English in the afternoon, because that was a way to help the French kids who went to a different school than Gene Geiger and his brothers, because he was the English kid, um, learn how to speak English. However, that was way before Title IX, and there were so many things. So really, the opportunities for French-Canadian young girls were so limited, and yet I could always see that I either wanted to be, I couldn't understand why women be, couldn't become priests because they seemed to control everything. And that, so as a child, I was trying to figure out, well, if I can't be a priest, what can I do to control something? And um, of course, that's when education found us or we found education and especially my parents who um, created those paths for education, even though they were not educated or they didn't have the opportunity for classroom education, I should say. And so, uh, I, you know, Geiger didn't mean anything to me. It was just a building with a big lawn. Um, but my dreams were somehow to, to, to be beyond just a housewife or whatever the heck that was. And I think that was always the case. In her long and storied career, Joanne has been honored with multiple awards, including being inducted into the PPAI Hall of Fame in 2009, a decade before the ascension to her current role. As Kermit the Frog noted, it's not always easy being green, and it's not always been easy to be a woman in an industry long dominated by men. Joanne's tenacity, vision, and hard work have earned the respect of all she meets and works with. Her optimism and lust for life have made her a leader people want to work with. And her willingness to mentor others is apparent when she says, I never have to work. I always think about the privilege that I get to work. We wish her the best as she looks to the future and faces a multitude of challenges and growth opportunities for Geiger and our industry. From all of us here at Promo Corner, thanks for listening to the new Profiles. I'm Steve Woodburn, and we'll be back next month with stories of other disruptors and agents of change in the promotional products world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profiles. Tune in next month for another story of someone who wasn't afraid to dream big, take chances, or shake things up.